0: You're listening to the Oodles of Marketing Podcast, where two brothers, not brothers, wage war, debate peacefully against the pitfalls of digital marketing. That part is accurate. Here are your hosts, Mark and Ryan Hughes. Our guest today is Michael Wintraub. For the last 20 years, Michael has focused on developing best in class marketing practices, including positioning, architecture and brand identities for leading brands in a variety of categories, including food and beverage, personal care and higher education dude's got a lot of experience. Today, he leads the strategy function at LPK, a Cincinnati based agency as their chief strategy officer, where he and his team seek to better understand people, ideas and brands and how they work. We're excited to talk to Michael about all things brand strategy. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of oodles of marketing. We're here today with Michael Wintraub, who is the chief strategy officer at LPK. We just gave a quick quick intro of Michael but want to welcome him to the podcast. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks, Mark. Ryan, good to see you. Nice to go. Absolutely. So Michael brings 20 years of experience uh, from LPK working with big brands across the board and really excited to talk to him today about some, some interesting work that he and his organization have been working on uh, with regard to innovation and, and how brands, both big and small, can think about innovation, can think about speed to market and, and figure out how to um, strengthen their brand positioning maybe uh you know do segmentation of of various brands differently and 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 how they go about that so uh michael you know first off you've been with lpk for just uh, you know right around 20 years that's that's pretty unique yep. in our space so i wanted to, to ask you you know what what um what have you found as as being a a key strength of staying with an organization like lpk and what have you found over the years
1: yeah you know i think it, it is um I guess unusual. I think at LPK, kind of, we feel like organizationally we're a little bit of an outlier within, you know, kind of a of a creative industry. You tend to see a lot of turnover, um, and we've really I think benefited from from continuity over the years. Not to say that we don't have people that come and go, and there's definitely some benefits of having an infusion of new ideas, new energy into the organization, but having that balance of kind of stability, um, just in kind of. Running a business and thinking about how you um, grow and scale a business, there's a a lot of benefits to that. For me personally, you know, I try to always challenge myself regularly. Is this is LPK or what we're doing? Is that is this still the right place for me? And at different points in your career, as I'm sure both of you have experienced, like you need different things. Um, And you know what I found in kind of being at LPK is I've had the chance to to grow and evolve and take on different types of challenges without having to leave the organization. And, you know, sometimes people need to leave, leave an organization to get the kind of challenge they're looking for, or the kind of growth. I think I've been fortunate enough that at LPK there's, there's been kind of the, the space to to move and to take on new types of challenges. So for me, it you know, we actually came, I, I came in in a, an account service role. We didn't have strategists when I started at LPK, but I always found myself, um, you know, really interested in that work. Once I kind of understood the business, I, I had kind of a natural bias to the strategy work and, and learning um, from, you know, mentors within LPK, learning from our clients, you know, doing my own kind of, um, kind of personal curriculum through books and, and formal education as, as well. And so, you know, I was able to kind of grow and then transition as we added a, a strategy function and eventually take on more Leadership responsibilities and growing that function, taking on more responsibility with our clients. Um, now part of LPK's leadership team. So, you know, every, every couple of years, there's a, an opportunity or a challenge to kind of level up to master a new set of skills. And that's, that's what's kept me kind of interested in, and engaged, you know, over the course of, of 20 years, which, um, yeah, when you look back, you're like, wow, it's, it's a lot of years that have kind of piled up behind me. But, um, well, but when in, you in say the it moment, the way it that you just. That way.
0: Yeah, and the way that, in the way that you just described it, it seems like every couple of years is almost like a new position, but without the learning curve of learning how to LPK at another organization, right? Um, right. You know, we yeah. we have a saying, and you probably have the same the same sort of um, learning curve. It takes a year for anyone that doesn't come in super seasoned and experienced to figure out how to oodle, uh, and let alone yeah. figure out how to deliver really good, solid work for our clients. And that's not to say you can't do good work, but there's there's a certain amount of groundwork that needs to be uh, set first before you can really feel like you're delivering so I definitely um, I see the the benefit of continuity and to your point you can certainly benefit from an injection of of fresh ideas fresh talent fresh thinking uh, but that continuity and that institutional knowledge is is so difficult to replace so um, kudos to you and the LPK team for for kind of keeping that as a uh, a cultural norm if you will in an industry that's not known for that hmm um, so I wanted to ask a question, though. So, you know, you're Chief Strategy Officer. My role is also Chief Strategy Officer. Um, but LPK is an organization. Uh, how long has a strategy function been sort of a, a core part of the team? Because I, I find a lot of agencies start, like, sort of dip their toe in that water, but they don't they don't fully execute the strategy piece the way that I would think about it. So I'm just curious how what your experience has been there.
1: Yep. Yeah, we... We really kind of minted our strategy function about 10 years ago. So it's been about a decade. You can kind of mark at least my, my personal career, kind of like you know, kind of breaking in two parts, kind of pre-strategy, post-strategy. So we've been at it for a while. And that was, you know, a reflection of our business changing, you know, our kind of our history and heritage was more in kind of traditional graphic design, brand design, uh, you know, sitting here in, in Cincinnati, did a lot of packaging and CPG work, which we still do, but kind of as the nature of some of our work, um, that was more downstream oriented, like that was being pulled away to kind of low cost, um, alternatives. We really made a intentional effort to push our work further upstream. And the further you get upstream, the more it's about defining a strategy, whether that's for, you know, strategy for a brand or strategy for, um, how a business is going to grow and innovate and, you know, the more we did that, the more we saw the need to really have dedicated strategy practitioners um, that are really focused on the art and the craft of strategy. So, you know, we have built kind of the the team over time, you know, and it's kind of scaled up. I think at, you know, at one point we were, you know, probably 12, maybe almost 15 people kind of depended how you counted us when we had um, some of our more, we had a few uh, offices outside of the, of the U.S. We had some so we had global representation, you know, and then kind of over time, the the shape of the business changes and evolves. And we've kind of scaled back down. Um, but right now we're, you know, depending again, kind of how you count us up anywhere between kind of um, eight or 12 strategists um, that, again, are really focused on that particular craft as practitioners. Um, and, you know, it, it has to reflect to me, it has to reflect kind of like the nature of what you offer to your clients and where and how you engage with them. Um, but it, you know that commitment for us has really paid off to have people that are waking up every day thinking about um, how do we build effective strategies for our brands, and as strategists, how am I building my career around this and really focused? And it's not it's not a side hobby, you know, uh, professionally. It's not something that I get to do every once in a while. It's it's you know what I'm really focused and in, in building a skill set. And I, you know, I've said kind of I look at some of our. Um, our strategists now that are early in their career. And I'm, I'm really jealous of them because they get to do this all of the time and they get so many more reps, so many more opportunities to build their skill set than, than I did when I was at, um, kind of a similar point in my career that I can just see them growing and getting better really quickly. And, you know, some of that took, took me years and sometimes they get the opportunities that, you know, they can pack three years of learning into, you know, four months of, of project work, just because the, the opportunities are coming out. Of, um, so well, and,
0: the, and the frameworks are there, right? I mean, that's, that's part of building an organization and building a practice area is figuring out what frameworks work, what, you know, what yeah. clients gravitate towards, what, what is theorycraft versus what is implementable, especially when you're talking about something like strategy, because it's, um, you really need a lot of pieces of the organization to to mesh and gel well together in order for any recommendation to actually have legs and come to market and not just get put in a deck and sit on a shelf right um, so it's okay. it's often you know the least rewarding part about working in, in anything that's more upstream when you have so much great work that went into the 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 thinking behind it, but then the implementation falls flat because the organization wasn't ready or you, you know, their the budget didn't didn't reflect what they what they thought it would be or any anything else as part of that. So um just curious to hear what your experience is in um, you know, using frameworks and and what have you found to be effective in in managing client relationships and and what have you found to be like, whoa, that's maybe too much or too little for for the kind of work that uh, that your team does?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, for me, it, it's always a balance. I mean, I like frameworks. I, I think in that way, I'm probably a little bit more analytical. If you kind of think on a spectrum, sometimes of strategists that are, um, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, analytical or, um, you know, kind of linear in their thinking all the way to maybe more cre- creative and, and, and lateral thinkers, um, that approach it. And, you know, I think we have, we have strategists, and I value strategists all the way across that that spectrum um, for what they can contribute. But you know, for me, the, the frameworks are really helpful. I think they're helpful for our organization, um, just in that to me, it gives you some structure to flow the thinking into, and you you kind of frees you up from spending time on thinking through. Yeah, what are these theoretical constructs? I don't have to spend a lot of my cognitive energy on. You know, making it up each and every time. I kind of know some of the basics, which then allows me as a strategist to flow all of my creativity, all of my kind of cognitive effort into what's the right, what's the best solution, or exploring different solutions and trying to make new connections, and you know, using those kind of fragments of ideas to come up with something that's um, new and novel and, and, and useful. And so, you know, it's like you know, we we try to coach our strategists, try to talk to our clients, like we don't need to follow these frameworks or these theories kind of off a cliff. Like we will use them as long as they are helpful when they stop being helpful. Like we can walk away from these things, you know, like, um, you know, it's, it's one of the the fun things about doing the kind of work that we do is it's, you know, while we might use elements of, of science and, you know, use some, some rigor to what we do, like ultimately, you know, strategies, a hypothesis, you know, it's a, it's a hopefully highly informed um, guess or, or point of view that we're putting out to the world, and then and then we test it by putting it out there. Um, so we don't have to follow these frameworks, you know, to the nth degree if they if they stop being useful. Um, so we we try to kind of have a few. We have a few that we found to be kind of successful that we we tend to fall back on. And then you know, when you get into a new challenge, and you're know, like, none of these frameworks work. Well, either we'll we'll make up something new, or kind of you know try to think our way through it, or or collaborate our way through a new set of challenges.
0: And so that's a good segue into thinking about innovation and thinking about how do you stay, how do you coach clients to stay ahead of not just where they are, but where they're going to be in three to five years? Because that's, that tends to be how long it takes to have, you know, an effective strategy really kind of play out. So how do you, how do you ensure that you're taking steps early and often and failing fast when necessary and then proving success early so that you can then chase that rabbit further down the path of full implementation and scalability. Uh, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about your, your next-gen CPG playbook uh, that you know we, we poked through that. Uh, there was a lot of really awesome information in there. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it was that it's 10 short slides, but it's 10 short slides really jam-packed full of really good thinking, but in plain speak right so it's it's good creative thinking and strategy but in a way that any client or any uh person that's at an agency can kind of understand and say like oh that that makes that makes sense uh yeah. duh we should be doing this so walk walk <laughs> walk us through that uh that construct a little bit and then we'll kind of pick apart pieces and in, in parts of it sure
1: yeah i mean the idea with, i mean thank you for saying that it it's certainly kind of the intention we're trying to use um, you know, human language in the way that we talk about what we do, or we, we we make an effort not to be opaque or, or too much jargon. Can't say we, we always get it right. Um, certainly guilty sometimes of leaning on some jargon or some buzzwords, but do my best to kind of keep it in, in um, simple human language. And so, you know, the idea of the next gen CPG playbook is really like, we've seen in, in the last decade, kind of the tried and true um, approach to, you know, growing successful CPG brands—it's—it's it's really kind of under attack, and so you know the the confluence of um, kind of changes in commerce and culture, and certainly aided by technology, is that you know a lot of the things that for you know really fifty, maybe almost a hundred years that always that generally always worked for CPG brands. Not that it was simple, but you know you kind of had this idea of big, scalable brands using media, um, using media to kind of signal your size. Um, you can get to people relatively easy through mass media. You know, we know there was only three or five channels and Mm -hmm. kind of knew how to get to consumers. Um, and you showed up, you showed up big, you made thoughtful kind of, um, uh, line extensions to extend the brand, grab more shelf space, all these things that kind of, you know, worked over time. You can see a category across category, all of a sudden, those things don't work in the same way. And so this is really an effort to um, provide some guidance to Brenda What What can we, you know, what hasn't changed, but also what has changed and how can we more effectively show up and compete? in in a world where now we have many more competitors, um, you know, the ability for consumers to um, kind of describe their product experience, whether things are going really well or under delivering. You know, they have the ability to tell the world that we know within a click or two. Um, we have many more competitors. The barriers to entry have dropped significantly. You know, while still kind of like the analog shelf is, is vital, we know more and more, you know, we're thinking about, um, how we can either go directly to consumers or, um, generate more of our own data, um, to connect with consumers in different ways. So there's just kind of a, a host of new, um, new forces at play. And we're trying to, like I said, provide a little bit of guidance to how to, how do we deal with these new challenges?
0: One example that comes to mind and it, it doesn't, it may not reflect exactly the next gen CPG playbook thinking, but it's definitely a derivative of it that we talked about in a previous show, which was the, the giant Charmin role and mm. how logistics information and data and R and D data and finance data and marketing data all sort of came together and gelled together to say you know what we already have this product it's just sitting there we're not you know there's not an over consumption of it what can we do with it and so there was this this plan to create a direct-to-consumer model prove out that you can purchase a certain number of those direct-to-consumer products and then create a subscription service out of it that's that's a pretty genius line extension of a product that was already there. Uh, would you say that's kind of an example of what this, this framework is kind of meant to uh, not articulate, but meant to identify and and figure out?
1: Yeah, I, definitely. I think, like you said, kind of the ability to cut across those silos um, is something that's just, you know, more and more of a, a demand on businesses today. And I think, you know, probably anyone listening to this, knows those challenges, have experienced those challenges of why those silos form and you know the the way that um, you know different parts of the organization tend to kind of function on their own. That said, the the businesses that can cut across those, you know, are more likely to make those connections and then actually, like you said, get them, get them to market, get them in hands of consumer. You know, one of the biggest changes that we've seen and, and very much informs the way that LPK shows up in the world is that connection between the product experience, the way we innovate around a product and a brand, like those things are now um, kind of inextricably connected where once a ton of time, you could just kind of like create some decent products and then brand and market the hell out of them. And, you know, if you had size and scale, you probably were going to be in pretty decent shape today, you know, the world's moving quicker. The challenges are quicker. And so, you know, that brand more and more becomes an expression of the products. And, you know, you need to do things that are either highly delightful or highly useful, like you're describing here, like that Charmin one, maybe it's both delightful and it's certainly useful. And, you know, that as much as, you know, the bears or the, you know, the commercials or the packaging or other expressions of the brand, the ability to get that product in the hands of consumers in a way that's differentiated, that is that becomes the brand experience. Um, yep. And so we're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, the reason we at LPK bring brand and innovation together um, kind of under one banner is because, you know, that product experience um, really is the the most true um, kind of pure expression of the brand. And so, you know, we just believe we can't be good brand consultants if we're also not helping you create amazing um, product experiences as well.
0: And, you know, but you think- mentioned, go ahead, Ron. I was
2: going to say, I think that, some of that's indicative of, of kind of the marketplace too, right? You have the, the world that we're in, like you mentioned, it's, it's changed a lot there and direct to consumer being a huge thing, right? The Sharman example being one, the idea 10 years ago that Sharman would be selling direct toilet paper, direct to consumer, not really logical, right? right? But, you know, more and more I can think of even brands I've interacted with or, or things that I've purchased that are, are, increasingly direct to consumer uh some of them industry shifting right dollar shave club was one years back that came in and it was like completely upset the marketplace because it used to be you could buy the shelf space you know you build you make the razors you you have some nice marketing around them you buy the shelf space and you know when you're going to kroger or walgreens or wherever you're shopping that's where you're buying your razors now they'll take all of that out right it's cheaper it's just as good uh and you know it comes to my doorstep right so now it i've just circumvented all of those brands who have invested a ton in the supply chain and product development effort uh because somebody's willing to send it to my doorstep so i think that kind of has knocked a lot of people on their heels um what what happens have, what's your experience with organizations that um Kind of the reactions to that you know in and my experience with especially when faced with major innovation as spurred by things like the internet and and especially the past couple of years and kind of amplifying some of that stuff mm-hmm. um you know I always find that companies fall on a spectrum of receptiveness right uh there are some folks who are really quick to uh react to that and kind of turn and and shift um and there are some that, you know, you don't, right. I remember years ago when we were starting as a business, you know, the number of of folks that we talked to who insisted that, um, that social media was a fad. Right.
1: Right.
2: I, I think we could all agree that they were wrong <laughs> at this current juncture. Yep. Um, but kind of, how do you, how do you traverse those waters and, and what do you see
1: there? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I feel like we're kind of going through, you know, a a revolution or two of learning. I think, you know, kind of the the rise initially of some of these um really powerful DTC brands like you're describing, you know, Dollar Shave Club and and others, you know, was kind of now almost like ten years ago. And I think, yeah, it kind of knocked knocked a lot of brands kind of on their backside, right? And um, you know, I think there was you know, kind of almost like the, the 12 steps, um, maybe it's a a blog post one of us can write, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think there was a a period of denial, Hey, this is kind of a a flash in the pan, you know, like not, you know, Oh, it's, it's so small. I don't really have to worry about it. And then by the time it was, you know, not so small, um, you know, time, um, maybe some time had been wasted. And then there was kind of a reckoning and a, a reconciliation. And then like, okay, we gotta, you know, we gotta get competitive and kind of fight back. There were a lot of, acquisitions that happen obviously like, you know, again, Unilever um, buying Dollar Shave Club and a lot of others where, okay, if we can't build it, we'll buy it. Right. Um, and then kind of like, you know um, I think integrated into our core business. Now I think we're kind of seeing like the next revolution on some of that. And it's, it's almost a little bit of kind of like the um,
0: you know,
1: I think to a degree kind of the, the return of some of the um, you know, Kind of brands that have um, have longstanding equity, um, have some, uh, you know, kind of uh, power in the marketplace that are kind of reasserting as, you know, I think we've seen, you know, with the cost of um, kind of buying eyeballs on the Internet. You know, those costs have gone up um, and the I think the demand from Wall Street and, and from investors to kind of show more profit than growth. Um, you know some of these DPC brands that you know were were certainly kind of attracting a lot of customers um, weren't necessarily profitable, and you know now that kind of the I think screws are being tightened. You're kind of seeing who's who's really built to last and and who's not. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, now we're in a place where the challenge for brands is you kind of have to do it all, which is you know really hard. I have, I have empathy for our clients, our marketing directors, our CMOs that are challenged with this because, you know, I think you have to show up on shelf really strong. I don't think, you know, the pure DTC plays, you know, there's not that many of them that are winning. That said, you also have to think about having, you know, at least a channel that's direct to consumers. You want ideally some of that customer data, um, but you got to be strong at shelf. You know, you got to, um, you got to be showing up in the world in a way that's interesting and, and fresh and feels relevant. So you got to keep, you know, got to continue to to renovate on your products. You can't just set it and forget it because um, other folks will show up with, with stuff that's better or more interesting. So, you know, it's I think the pendulum has swung back, not all the way to like, here's what it was 20 years ago, but maybe finding a little bit of balance. But again, ultimately, kind of for a lot of these brands and a lot of categories, you kind of have to do it all, uh, which is a really big challenge.
0: And I think what one thing you said that I I was mulling over is you know, the customer experience has changed. And so we we do primarily digital marketing. And so mm-hmm. what we say is that you're, and for many brands and many organizations, your customer experience, a gateway to your customer experience is actually how they find you online. Because mm-hmm. whether it's B2B or whether it's a, a delightful experience or a post that someone uh, has has shared about a brand or about their experience with the brand, that's almost the first moment of truth in today's world where it it used to be your first moment of truth was on shelf right that's you're 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 walking around you see some interesting packaging it's a showstopper you maybe have you know the big stickers on the floor to to enhance the experience or you've got a big built-in or you know uh, a video of some kind playing with a coupon whatever that is that was your first moment of truth in many cases to drive trial and now that's that's very much not the case it's still it still has a place right you're you can't get away from that to your point brands have to do everything but the emphasis on having some relevant digital experience is very different than what it was yeah. a decade ago or even 5 years ago with with what consumers expect um, and the, i think those those expectations are going to continue to raise where you have Consumers that expect their direct-to-consumer experience to mirror that of Amazon, which is right. difficult to to replicate, right? Because Amazon has all of that first-party data about you. You don't even have to log in when you go to Amazon.com because they probably have, you know, have captured that in a way that that makes the experience easy over time for in a variety of ways.
2: Yes, you also have delivery expectations there, right? Right. That's not mm-hmm. not one to glaze over. But I've experienced that myself when you know I order something from any number of companies direct and you know they send me it takes 24 hours or or two days right i ordered on friday and i don't get the shipping yeah. notification until monday and <laughs> it doesn't show up till thursday i'm like jesus i had to wait forever and yeah and that's really not that long i just had that happen with the backpack i ordered um but you know amazon has done such a good job of conditioning us to you know i expect If I order anything online, it should be here within two days max. Maybe tomorrow if it's if it's before two (laughs) o'clock, and that's really difficult for you know a brand that is kind of shifting into direct to consumer. uh, That kind of just like ratchets up the the need there, right? To be able to deliver in tandem with all of those expectations is, is
1: really challenging. Yeah. I think consumer expectations are kind of sky high. Like you said, all, all these, you know, maybe huge companies, if it's Amazon or Uber, or whoever have, have trained us. And once you kind of experience that magic, you know, like we're, we're humans, like that's our new baseline. Like, okay, I'm used to that. Like, why isn't everything that good? Um, and so I, I think you're right. It's a, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, to, kind of like we were talking earlier, that's where, you know, the ability for brands that are able to kind of meet that, um, you know, kind of meet that bar, go, you know, um, jump over that bar. Like, again, that becomes, that becomes the brand experience and becomes a huge component of how do I, as a consumer feel about this brand? Like what, you know, it's kind of like, in our brains, you know, do I kind of put it in the, in the bucket that's like positive and has green lights around it. Or I put this brand in the bucket that's kind of like negative and has red lights. If I put it in a yellow bucket, you know, it's like, ah, maybe it's okay. Um, and I, I think, you know, our brains are, are kind of like, we're only giving these brands so much, you know, thought, right. In most cases um, we're, we got the rest of our lives to live. So we're making these pretty quick kind of evaluations and, you know, that to us is where, you know, like you're saying that, that CX, that you know, shipping experience, or that digital interface, that becomes as much of what the brand is about as the ad that you ran, you know, or like you said, the uh, the package graphics that show up somewhere. All of those things matter, and they all contribute. But you're going to feel that, you know, potentially you're going to feel that CX much more viscerally. Um, if it's excellent, you're going to feel it. If it if it disappoints you, you're going to feel it. And, and it's all those things contribute to. Um you know can contribute to our our view and our judgment of how we hold these brands and if I'm willing to to pay a little bit extra for something or I'm willing to you know try something new because I'm not satisfied with with the last one that I tried you know it all contributes
0: so so how do you go about testing some of those experiences how do you how do you take the next gen cpg playbook as an example and put it into action? Can you walk us through maybe like a a fictitious acme brand of of solving a problem and then and taking that to market? What would be a normal problem that an Acme brand might experience? And then we solve it with this next-gen CPG playbook. Oh, goodness.
1: Um, so many different challenges. I mean, there's a few that, that kind of feel like, um, you know, briefs that we see pretty often. And this is just to acknowledge, you know, the work that, um, you know, that Oodles does, you're kind of in one part of the industry LPK is in a little bit different and we know there's a a ton of contributors that all kind of like make these giant machines work um so for us the kind of briefs that we see or where maybe we kind of deploy elements of the um the next-gen CPG playbook you know one is certainly just from an innovation from getting new ideas out there how do we test and learn quickly um you know so we're helping our clients to kind of find opportunities build innovation platforms like understand where the idea spaces are but then kind of as as quickly as possible we want to figure out how to get those ideas out into the world so we can start learning about them Um, so you know we use a methodology we call proto selling um, that is very much using some of the you know the digital tools that i think you all are, are very familiar with but you know using kind of you know oftentimes digital advertising on some of the the social networks to then get information about these ideas and to be able to track engagement and click through and, you know, would I put this into a, a digital basket or not? But it starts to give us a very quick read on, is this a good idea and one that we should continue to invest in? Or is this just not, you know, it was an idea that looked good on paper or felt good in a, in a, uh, you know, a workshop, but ultimately falls flat with, with consumers. And we want to get that information as quickly as possible. So, you know, one of the tenants of the next gen CPG playbook is, Test and learn in the wild. Um, you know, we're trying to get away from um, like research methodologies that are people saying what they will do. You know, claimed behavior. We're trying to get to real behavior. So, mm-hmm. putting re- stuff, ideas in front of them that look like real things that are out in the world and, and kind of see how people react to. So, again, we often do that in kind of a digital space. We can also put real packages on on real shelves and see how people behave because um, we want to get to understanding like real behavior. So that's a common one. Um, another common one we get is, you know, basically like, hey, my, you know, maybe I have a brand that's been around for a while and I just feel like um I as the the marketing director or the brand manager, I feel like maybe we're not as relevant as we once were. And, you know, oftentimes a brief will come across, how do we, you know, how do we appeal to millennials? How do we appeal to Gen Z? Um, so, you know, we try to break it down from there. It's a little bit of a, you know, kind of a um, big generalization to start from. Um, so we, we obviously dig in and get a bit more um, specific about the, the brand, the business challenge, the brand challenge, and, and the consumer that we're really targeting. But part of what we try to do is to bring in you know, some of our cultural understanding. So we have a, a foresight practice that's really in touch with how the culture is changing broadly. So we think about kind of broader socioeconomic trends, but also what's happening in our category. What's the new language of our category? Where are new benefits being explored? Like, what's going to make this brand show up and feel rich and relevant? Doesn't mean we walk away from all of our heritage or all the equity, but we need to evolve and change. And so, you know, bringing in some of that foresight understanding. And then, you know, we try to balance that with what's true about this brand at its heart. Um, So, you know, we were talking about frameworks earlier. One of the frameworks we love is called Desires Thinking, Um, it's based on. 16 hardwired consumer desires. And we, we tend to use that to really focus on kind of like, what's the core idea of this brand? Sometimes brands are really clear on that, but a lot of times they're like, mm, we've kind of, you know, we've kind of uh, over time, um, you know, we've kind of lost our way a little bit. We're not quite sure where home base is. And so, you know, we come back, it's very kind of core fundamental brand strategy work, get really clear on what's that core idea, what's our, our shared belief between the brand and the consumer and then how do we make a promise to that consumer and getting really tight what that idea what that language is um, so we can put it out to the market with confidence and with fidelity
0: That's a really good explanation of of the of the framework Thank you for that um, so uh, as I was over here thinking and about proving the success of those things what what does that look like in a normal situation does that mean you, you need tens of thousands of success successes does that mean you need several hundred successes uh and by successes that could be engagements or intent, and you know purchase intents or whatever that success criteria is i'm just curious what the threshold is for most brands
1: oh goodness you're on that one you're, you're probably asking the wrong guy um the details on that level i mean you know we'll you know, with some of the kind of the legs of research that we run, you know, we'll, we'll run them on, um, you know, Facebook or Instagram just over a couple of days, but you can quickly, I think, you know, get up into the, as you guys well know, into you know, putting them in in front of a hundred, you know, a couple hundred thousand, um, people that represent your, your consumer target or the, the behaviors of your, your, uh, your desired segment. So, you know, we, we obviously are doing that at a scale that we feel confident kind of giving us a, some conviction to move forward. And then you balance that, you know, so that's where, you know, especially kind of short-term decision-making, that can be really powerful again, maybe for a new product idea um, um, or something that's maybe a bit more um, discreet as you think about like, um, package design or certain kinds of naming or messaging or, or claims and things like that, where it can be, you know, you can feel good about kind of, Hey, there's a winner or a loser coming out of this leg of research. Um, it gives us a conviction to move forward. And then you balance that with kind of on, you know, the more kind of far reaching brand side where we're building, you know, you think about building brands as you all do, you know, that's efforts not only over years, but like decades and, you know, one of the metaphors I love—I forget who I stole it from—but um, you know, think about a brand like a bird's nest, and you're kind of like adding, you know, uh, a twig here, a leaf there, and you're building kind of this this thing that maybe is really delicate, but then over time becomes really kind of strong as well. Um, but it's made up of all these little pieces and parts, and so you know, it's testing a brand idea through you know a weekend of social media engagement. To me, is not ideal, like. You know, there's there's a lot more that um, we want to guide our brand choices, kind of over a long term horizon. Thinking about again, kind of what's what's true about the brand, maybe always has been true. How's the consumer changing? How's the culture changing? How do we put an idea out there that we feel like is is essentially going to be timeless in nature? Um, because we feel like we can, can support it over years and and ultimately decades.
0: And what you know, the simple way to explain what I think I heard you say there was. It's almost like short-term AB testing. It gives you a directional, mm-hmm. you know, clear winner or clear loser to an initial yeah. idea, but it's not the end all be all. It's it's one data point that you can use as a jumping-off point to run your next test and iterate from yeah. there.
1: Yeah, I th- I I think that's that's a wise way to think about it.
2: And I think that's valuable too for for folks to uh to to think about right we run into this challenge all the time especially in our world being very digital and and having a lot of data uh associated with it where it's it's very easy to come up with like a negative result um and just be like okay well this is a bad idea and right. m- maybe that might be it it's kind of one input right why, why was maybe the test was faulty or or maybe there's um some overall industry readiness or, or consumer readiness uh, that needs to be addressed before this, this idea will actually have some legs. And I think, you know, being able to kind of, how do you traverse those, I guess, of, of determining like, is this kind of a non-starter or is it potentially something else that needs to be uh, handled?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you you know, you want to take any of these things within obviously within Context of a larger conversation, and you know, like you said, I think the data can be really valuable and useful. And just because it gives an answer that maybe we don't love um, as marketers, or maybe we fall in love with an idea or a design or you know something like, we can't ignore it, but we can't contextualize it. Um, you don't want to be defensive about it. You know, it's like what, just, just like anything else in life. Like truly, what what can we learn from this? Mm-hmm. Um, what might it indicate? And then You know, how do we, how do we make good use of it? Um, And so, you know, thinking about, again, kind of the the balance of inputs, I do think there are some decisions where, like you said, an A-B test and, and, you know, it might be a little bit more cut and dried and you'd have more confidence in saying, you know what, we tried this color and that color. And it's, it's pretty clear that people, people care more or act more based on color A than color B. So like, let's just go with that. Um, we don't need to spend time and, and resources debating other things, you know, that, that may be less clear, or as you kind of think about what might be the implications on other parts of the brand, other parts of the business, it's like, hey, let's let's take this in, you know, have some perspective in a bigger picture. Um, what might we learn? But again, just like with the frameworks, like not follow this data off a cliff, you know, as business leaders whether we're consulting with our clients or the clients that are leading their business. Like, I don't think we can abdicate our responsibility to the data. Like, you know, if I think if you're being a good consultant, if you're being a good business leader, like you should know your category, you should know your consumer. um, You know, you should have a sense of what's important to these people certainly be, you know, feel like you have some intuition around where this brand could and should go. And ultimately I think, you know, kind of need to have the, call like business courage to um you know sometimes a smart decision is to hey this data makes sense we're gonna we're gonna act on it other times it's like i i see the data i understand it i'm gonna Mm -hmm. make another decision because i have some other evidence on the other side again I'm, i'm gonna put it in balance in perspective it kind of circles back to the point you
2: made earlier around the you know what people are actually going to do or actually want right um it's that old you know Cliche as hell, but but true quote from uh, Henry Ford of, you know, if you ask consumers what they wanted, they, t- they told you a faster horse, right? right? Sometimes, especially when being faced with these real revolutionary products uh, or services or offerings of some kind, you know, um, your data could be deceiving, right? If you ask your customers, you know, hey, what do you, what do you want? it's oftentimes you like it's very rare for you to get kind of a revolutionary idea out of it. You're going to get something that's like iteratively, um, at best better. Yeah. Right. And, and cutting through that can sometimes be challenging.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's certainly the part where it's, you know, consumers, if it's, if it is kind of a, um, you know, more of a, um, sorry there's a a word i'm looking for that's escaping me at the moment but um you know that the ideas that feel more familiar look more familiar easier to, to understand as a consumer probably easier to adopt more quickly things that you know are truly um or feel more different feel newer or are newer harder to understand um you know, less likely for immediate adoption, requires more education, maybe just getting comfortable with the idea, slower, um, potentially kind of slower growth on some of those things. So again, I think that's the, the job of the the business leader and the consultants to, to put that in context, you know, like, hey, a, you know, a close in idea, you know, hey, we have these three flavors, we've added a fourth flavor, okay, I, as a consumer can understand that either I, you know, want to buy the grape one, or I don't, but like, that doesn't, Take a lot of processing power to figure it out, so I can feel pretty confident. Consumers either want grape or they don't. A whole new product idea or a new category idea—that's um, going to take some time. So I'm not going to look or expect the same from the metrics. I probably should design the research differently. I should coach and consult my clients differently on on what to expect and what might be the better type of methodology that might look like, you know, a deeper ethnographic study or more intense um, kind of. Home use tests and things like that. So you know we don't we don't want to kind of you know hit every nail with the same hammer. Like we really want to understand what the challenges is, and then hopefully you know look into our our toolbox of options and kind of find the right method, the right approach that really fits the situation.
0: I have about eight million questions I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> one is, is about research. So we've talked about research and data quite kind of extensively as part of this. But what sorts of of research inputs, uh, meaning things you know, maybe from from a third party, should should brands and organizations be thinking about as part of brand innovation? And then, what should some primary research pieces uh, be that they should be thinking about? Uh, without going crazy to your point, because the world has changed, we can't you know we can't do focus groups for eighteen months to on on a right. small iteration on a revolutionary change, maybe, but not something small. So mm-hmm. what? Talk a little bit about what research makes sense and what situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly is kind of endless, right? Of what what brands can do and what, what some brands do choose to do. And I think the the filter on all these things is like, what are we going to do with this? Like we can go off and do a lot of research and fund and bring, you know, big brands, big businesses have, you know, nice, often nice sized budgets to fund these things. But are we going to act on this? What are we going to learn? What's the, the learning objectives? And then you know, what what might we do about it? You know, at LPK, we kind of look through a very traditional kind of four C's model, call it, you know, thinking about, you know, the customer, the, um, the competition, the category, culture. So I think those are things that are, you know, more or less need to kind of be always on kind of research. Um, you know, you certainly got to kind of have a tab on what's going on, you know, with, um, within your category, how your competitors are, are showing up. Um, you know, the, again, the piece that we feel like is, um, is really vital and often doesn't show up maybe with, with every brand or every business is more of kind of the, the trends and foresight work. Um, which again, we, we kind of start all the way at kind of big sociocultural drivers and then drive that all the way down into a, into a category and sometimes even into more specific spaces than that. And that's really looking at like, what are the, what are we going to like, you know, from this to what and trying to understand where the change is happening so you know we can kind of meet the moment when that change is is occurring because if we're only looking at what's happening now and we're developing products or experiences for six twelve eighteen twenty four months from now like you can imagine how we kind of like miss the mark so you know we feel like that's kind of a vital piece that's often missing from that that mix or that cocktail of 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 research and data that brands have and so gives you more of a forward-looking view and trying to really understand where is the change happening and how how can we as a brand really um capitalize on that change and that's where you know growth and magic and all the good things can happen
0: so michael we've we've talked a lot about different trends uh at at a macro view what are a couple of those that you could identify that that would probably cut across some various things sure
1: yeah, a, a few things I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing kind of pop up in, in multiple categories or having impact on, on multiple categories. I think, you know, one is kind of the, the continued rise of like, call it micro communities. Um, you know, that, that seem to be happening, you know, for all of these things, technology is such an enabler. Um, so, you know, the, the deep dives that people can do on, on Reddit and, you know, other places like that, that, you know, really, I think, um, Rewards, you know, if you're high interest in certain category or subculture, like there's a place for you to be at home, and you know, there's impact or there's opportunity for brands there to authentically show up in those spaces when you have a right to. Like you, you're kind of a guest, so you need to be on really good behavior, and you can't kind of barge your way into the room. You like look at me, but if you have something to offer within those communities and within those subcultures, like um, you know, I think that can be a really rich place. Um, you know, you can, you can build a, an amazing thriving brand and and business just, you know, kind of um, integrated into, into subcultures. Obviously, you know, all the things that are going on with technology are just kind of like in, you know, with, with the metaverse, with AR, VR, you know, those to us are places to experiment and learn right now. Um, You know, I certainly have no idea how any of that stuff is going to play out. You know, like I think I think some of it's going to be around in in some way, shape, or form. Um, Am I going to be wearing a a headset 12 hours a day? I kind of doubt it, but who knows? I I certainly don't know. But um, I think right now the the opportunity for brands is to, like, engage with that, kind of kind of learn, um, figure out, spend a little bit of time, maybe a little bit of money, um, doing some experiments. Because, you know, whatever, it's going to kind of morph and change. Like, you don't want to be... You know, kind of starting at, um, you know, at point zero, um, while others have been engaging in this for, for years and years. So, you know, those are some of the conversations that I feel like we're, we're having regularly. But, you know, hit me on another day and we would come up with another five or ten of them.
0: Yeah, completely fair enough. On a different podcast, we were talking about the adoption of something like Bitcoin. So we were looking at Starbucks mm-hmm. and Starbucks is, is always on the forefront of adopting new technologies and so you can kind of look at them as almost a validator of something being a real thing. And so yeah. they were the first to accept um, cashless via the Apple Watch as an example. So Apple Pay and, mm-hmm. and Google Pay, one of the first retail, retailers to do that. And now they're one of the first to accept Bitcoin as a, as a transactional currency at a retail level. Uh, so it's just interesting to think about cultural trends that are happening like that. To your point, technology so Bitcoin, is such an enabler. I thought they
2: were, I thought they were making their... Uh rewards program and NFT.
0: I thought it was Bitcoin.
1: Probably both of those. Probably both. I feel like the, I feel like the, I did hear something about the loyalty program. Um, The other one that, you know, maybe again, just kind of obvious, but something you said kind of reminded me, you know, as we think about, I'm just thinking about, you know, the kinds of conversations we're having across a lot of different clients and a lot of different businesses um, is certainly around sustainability as well. Um, You know, obviously, I you know I think we're we're in the middle of a a climate crisis, um, and you know the um, kind of the responsibility for brands to you know contribute positively to this world. um, You know, it's one that I believe in, Um, and so you know how do you how do you do that while still running in a functioning successful business in today's world? You know, offers a huge challenge and. You know, I think we're seeing some consumer behavior change, but maybe not as always as, as quickly as you might anticipate or or even hope for. Um, so there's that kind of that tension of like, hey, what, what do we think is the right thing to do for the world, for our business? But will our consumers meet us there um, or in what way? And how do we engage consumers to kind of, um, you know, maybe increase adoption of some of these things that are going to make a, a more positive impact? What's really kind of interesting about... Really two of those.
2: I and mean, they're they're all interesting points. Um, and I'm sure we could sit here and pontificate forever. But
1: yeah.
2: you know, to me, I kind of take the um the last point you just made and, and the first one about um those kind of micro communities and participation in those. Um I I feel like there's this transition from consumers to expecting organizations to not just be faceless entities that produce products Mm -hmm. right yeah um there's this this underlying notion of like i i'm and it's always been this way right you you kind of vote with your dollars so to speak but you know with the rise of a lot of these communities and and ways to interact with brands you really have an opportunity to kind of task a brand with you know okay what do you stand for right Mm -hmm. um And does that align with my own visions and my own feelings, whether that's, you know, emotionally or politically or whatever it may be um, and make those decisions of whether I'm going to purchase your product partially based on that, Um, not necessarily only based on whether it's the best product for my task or, or or what have you.
1: Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, the work that we do with our brands, when we're you know kind of working on brand foundations and brand strategy, you know, part of that exercise is always looking at you know brand beliefs, brand behaviors. What do we, you know, as, as you were just saying, as a brand, what what do we believe? Getting really clear on that, and then because we because we have these set of beliefs, what are we going to do? What are the actions and behaviors that follow that? Because you know, if we're just talking about something or putting something on a piece of paper and, and nothing becomes of it, well, that's, that's pretty worthless. Um, so how we put these things into action. Um, I agree. It matters to consumers, um, sometimes, <laughs> um, but I think it's, I think it's smart of brands to do, cause it's going to matter to some of your consumers, um, to some it won't, but you know, it's, um, it makes the brand, you know, I think, um, more interesting more specific um more committed all of these are are good things um and you know we are in a world that's obviously more and more polarized in a lot of ways as we talk here on election day um so you're in a a polarized world and you know i think for a certain segment of consumers um they are looking for that kind of information and, and a perspective and you know brands are to agree in kind of a, a no win situation. Again, this is where I've, I do have some empathy for our, our clients because um, when you're a big, broadly appealing brand, it's it, it's tough to kind of make a stance on a political spectrum. And it really, again, kind of takes some um, I think some some business courage to kind of say you know look back at our values, look back you know organizational values, brand beliefs. How do we stay true to that? Um, you know, again, how do we stay committed? We write these things down we follow them through with our behaviors and our actions, because, you know, again, a segment of your, um, of the audience is paying attention and they're tracking and they're not going to let you off the hook. Um, and so, you know, whether you love it or not, like this is what we're all dealing with. And so I think you kind of have to face it head on.
2: I think the challenge really that you run into with an organization is that, you know, by and large on certain topics, um, 50% 50% of your customers are going to agree with, they're going to disagree, right? One way or the other, right? You're, you're pretty much split down the middle. Yeah. Um, so you're going to alienate certain people by taking stances, but also you're going to alienate 100% of them by not taking a stance. So it's really kind of this undesirable position to be in of um, not only your consumers, but also your, you know, these companies have people who work there and those sorts of things too, that, you know, you potentially have people on staff that, that don't align with the company visions and things. It's a, it's a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. um,
1: Yeah. I I think for me, the, maybe the one caveat in there is as a brand, you don't, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Um, I think that's a valuable point that that (laughs) maybe some folks should listen to more often than, than
2: not as, you know,
1: Yeah, I think that's where you have to put it through the filter of maybe what's relevant to our category, like where do we have kind of a right or an expectation to show up in this this cultural conversation. Um, And then because we've made a commitment to certain values or brand beliefs, we are going to talk about these things or we are going to be demonstrative and kind of come out with a a point of view or a stance um, because they are true to, to who we said. But it doesn't mean we have to react to everything that's going on in the world because um, you're going to spend all your time doing that. Um, to your point, you'll probably alienate some people, but not for a good reason. Um, right. so I think you, you do have to pick your spots, but there's going to come a day and time, I think for virtually every brand now where kind of the spotlight's going to be on you or your category and you need to be prepared to show up and, and have something to say and be able to, to contribute and, and feel confident in, in how you're showing up because you've done the work, to kind of be really clear what, what this brand is about, what we value, what our consumers care about, um, right. and you know, how we want to show up in the world.
2: And that's a, that's a valuable thing. Cause I, I think, you know, sometimes it can be tempting to try to you know, almost like barge into a conversation, right? It's, yeah. it's like, you're showing up and you're like, Hey, we, do, you know, we, uh, don't support animal testing, right. For, for cosmetics. And it's like, well, who the hell cares what our opinion is on it? Right right, if I'm a cosmetic brand uh and that's yes. a, that's a topic of debate, that is potentially relevant right and, and you should potentially take a stance on that um but kind of barging into all of these other conversations we're like why why are you here e- exactly
1: exactly well said
0: well, it's a good segue so if if we had some parting words of wisdom to uh to our listeners, whether you're a big brand or an aspirational brand, a challenger brand. What what is a way to get started? What's like a first step towards brand innovation? Uh, really investing in brand strategy. What what's a, a good starting point?
1: Yeah, I mean, first thing is is you know, look look <laughs> look uh, look to yourself. Um, you know, look inside. Are we? Do we feel like we're really clear and tight on? what this brand stands for and how we're going to compete. I mean these are the most basic fundamental questions, but not only kind of like hey what have we written down on on paper, but you know, this is where kind of discovery activities is, you know, really vital, you know, are we talking to our consumers? What do they think we're about? How do these things match up? We've maybe we've written some things on paper or maybe we've said some things in a meeting, then we go talk to consumers. You know, that's data. Um, it can be qualitative conversations. It can be all kinds of different ways to kind of extract some learning. But, you know, we say we want to be this, but consumers say we're that. How big is that gap? And how do we kind of get working to, to start to close that gap? And so, you know, for us, brand is, is vital. It's always going to be um, getting really clear on um, what we stand for and, and how we compete is always going to be the initial focus from there. It's yes, how do we put products into the world and experiences into the world that are a reflection of that brand idea? Um, Obviously, you got to figure out ways to make the business work. So they need to be profitable and, and deliver growth and all of those good things. But they need to be expressions of that, that brand experience. And then follow that way, follow that all the way downstream through all of the, you know, all of the touch points, all of the, all of the, um, you know, all the channels, all the things like we want it to feel cohesive, congruent, you know, again, go back, we're kind of building that nest. So, but if we don't kind of have the initial blueprint for things, it's it's going to be really difficult. We're just going to be kind of, you know, acting in ways that are creating a lot of activity, but not achieving much. Um, so we want to create that that blueprint um, for the brand and then then get busy making it happen.
0: I like your analogy. I'm probably going to steal it, but this... Yeah, you know, I'll give you. I'll give you full credit. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I said, I don't
1: know who I stole it from. So,
0: <laughs> so, uh, so, first step in, in the process is identify what your current nest looks like and where are the gaps. Uh, I'm going to call it a brand yeah. gap analysis. Look internally, conduct an internal brand gap analysis figure out where you need to, to add some sticks to your nest and and go from there. So Michael, if if folks need to get in touch with you or they want to explore brand strategy with LPK or, or any of the other work that you do, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, you can find us certainly um, at LPK.com. You can find me at, at Michael.Wintraub at LPK.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Like most of us. Um, I like Twitter still. We'll see how it goes. Um, and Wintraub <laughs> on, on Twitter. Uh, so any of those outposts, um, hopefully, a, a Google search away, but, um, yeah, love, love talking about these things. Um, Mark Ryan, thank you for having me, but anyone that's kind of interested in having a, a brand oriented conversation, like find me and let's chat for sure.
0: Sounds great. Thanks so much for being here. Well, everyone, you've reached the end of this episode of Oodles of Marketing. You can find us at Oodles of Marketing all over social. And uh, if you have any questions, send those questions in to questions at oodle.io. Thanks. See you next time.